Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday sermons. I pray that they'll be a blessing to you, and if you're ever in the area, please stop in and worship with us. We'd love to have you. Let's uh, pray. Lord, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts. Grant us the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings. Implant in us also fear of your blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing what is pleasing unto you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies, Christ our God, and we give you glory together with your Father who is from everlasting and your all-holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. All right, so we have been... kind of traveling with St. Paul here through 2 Corinthians, and um, there's a lot of good stuff particularly here, so I'm going to stick with 2 Corinthians primarily today, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through, uh, through 17. And so we have to remember as we're going through this, we're, we're not just, this isn't just a piece of text in isolation from everything else. This is an ongoing argument that St. Paul is making uh, to the church at Corinth, and uh, so it's all kind of proceeding along the same lines. So, so we've been covering it for about the last two weeks or so. So if you've missed it, go check it out on our, on our, our church's podcast, uh, podcast page. But St. Paul says, we are always of good courage. We know we're away at home in the body. We're away from the Lord for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body at home with the Lord. So he says here, we know... We have good courage. We know that while we are at, he says, home in the body. He says something at home in the body. So I think that's important just to kind of stop for a second and reflect on. Paul says, he kind of likens the body as as home. Notice he doesn't say here that the body is bad, right? Or his body, or the body is evil. Or he doesn't say anything about the, the body being like, a, a, the, your body is not the real you. What's really you is inside of your body, and what's really you is inside of your body. And this body is just something that we have to inhabit right now, but that what's really you on the inside is what matters. And one day that real you is going to be gone. But that's not quite the biblical teaching about what our bodies are. We are, bo- we are spirits, we are souls, and we are bodies. The body isn't something that's not part of us. The body is something that is part of us. Our bodies are our home, because remember, what is going to be resurrected at the last day? Our bodies. Our bodies. And remember, last week also, he talked about the tent versus the building, the temporary body versus the eternal body, but both are embodied. So to be here in our home is in some way to not be with the Lord as we are kind of waiting for that. Then he says, well, how would we, how would we know this, right? That we're at home right now in the body, we're away from the Lord. We walk by faith, we walk not by sight, that we would rather be away and at home with the Lord. Well, he's, this reference here, getting courage here, walking by faith and not by sight, is a reference again to what we kind of discussed last week earlier in the chapter, where he talked about the things that are unseen are eternal, and the things that are seen are temporal. He talked about the Holy Spirit as the guarantee. This causes them to continue 
to have courage in their work. So walking by faith and not by sight is Paul saying, as I'm trusting in God, that God will do what he said he's going to do, while well, I'm trusting that one day I will be with the Lord, I work for you. I work for the Corinthian church. He's talking to them, I'm doing all of this for your benefit, on your behalf. A commentator named Witherington says, To be with the Lord, wherever the Lord is, is to be home. Since believers do not see these things being realized, they live by faith and courage, aiming to please God. And he says here in verse 9, Whether we at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we have to ask ourselves here, why mention the judgment seat of Christ? Because this is when, if they do not believe everything that Paul's been trying to say, everything he's been trying to get across to them, all of the work he's been doing for them, this is the place where Christ will vindicate him in the presence of everyone. But it also serves as something to make us a little uncomfortable and to make them a little uncomfortable. And I think it should make us especially uncomfortable, especially in an age of easy believism, where entering the kingdom of God is reduced to raising your hand during an altar call. But there's this, this, this idea that we don't talk about really very often, where Paul says we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single one of us. We see this idea in the New Testament in Romans 2, 6, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says, God will render to each one according to their works. To those whom by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And in Romans 14, 12, he says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we see here something that is very hard to talk about. Every single one of us, we will stand before Christ and give an account for what we have done in the body. We will all give an account. Those who sow to sin, what will those, what will you reap? <laughs> what does scripture say? The wages of sin is death. Those who sow to sin will reap what results, but those who sow to life will reap what results. So brothers and sisters, as Christians, what we do in our bodies matters. How we treat our neighbor matters. The things that we do in secret matter. The th <laughs> yelling at the cat and, and <laughs> it matters, right? What we do, how we live as Christians, representative of our Lord Jesus Christ, how we conduct ourselves matters, how we speak to strangers matters, flipping off somebody who cut us off on the highway matters. Not that I've ever done that, and I know none of you have ever done that, right? What we do matters because we are bearers of Jesus Christ. So what should be shining forth from us, like we talked a few weeks ago about, the glory of the knowledge of God reflected in the faith of, face of Jesus Christ. That's what should be reflecting through us. Life, not darkness. So what we do, how we live, matters. 
He says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. But what we are known to God, and I hope is known to you, uh, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So he's saying we know the fear of the Lord. We talked a few months ago about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. It is in the light of the judgment seat of Christ that St. Paul can say, that they can persuade others to the same way of life that St. Paul and his followers are modeling. He says, he says, what we are is known to God. So he says, God knows us. God knows our good works for you. And then he says, I hope in light of that, it is also known to you. He's hoping that they know it too. Because he says then in verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So Paul's being a little bit humorous here because he says, I'm not commending myself to you. But if you keep reading, that's exactly what he's doing. He is commending himself to them. He's commending himself to them and his workers to the Corinthian church. And it's kind of funny. I don't know. I find it amusing where he says, I'm not going to commend myself. But then he goes and he, he actually does that. His hope here is that as he writes them, they will take what he says to heart, particularly everything he just previously wrote, seriously. Why? Because we have to remember the false apostles, right? The false apostles were coming and they're saying, Paul's not a real apostle. He's a fake apostle. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And here's why we can tell you he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have these crazy visions like we do. He doesn't have this material wealth like we do. But Paul, very brilliantly throughout the Corinthian letters, he says, exactly. But then he says, I actually do have visions, but I don't talk about them. There's a portion, there's a part where the Corinthian church is trying to use the spiritual gifts sort of as like a litmus test for the people who are truly spiritual versus the people who aren't spiritual. And St. Paul says, one of the gifts that they valued above all of the other ones was speaking in tongues. And St. Paul says that I'm, I, by the way, I just want you all to know I speak in tongues more than all of you. But what St. Paul does here is he's trying to contrast himself between the false apostles. Because the false apostles look like the real deal. They kind of sound like the real deal because they have all of the nice words to say. They can craft really, really, really cleverly constructed arguments. They could do all of that stuff. Maybe even better than St. Paul. But what they don't do, like St. Paul, is they don't conform their lives to the image of Christ. So if the Corinthian church, if they see these false apostles and they look and they sound like what they think a successful apostle should look like, then they can respond positively. Then they can respond to them correctly. Commentator in Witherington says, The false ones, St. Paul suggests, boast in manners of form or outward appearance and not matters of substance or matters of the heart that really counts. One time, I, I can't even, it was a really long time ago, so you have, to, you have to bear with me here, just take my word for it. But I remember I was in a service one time, and, I, and, the, and the, the person who was preaching was boasting about how much money he had and how financially well-off he was. And so he said that I have all of this money, and he's boasting about all the money, and then he's like, I'm not boasting. And you're sitting here thinking, well, it kind of sounds like you are. But he said, I'm not boasting. He's like, but for me to reach, my ministry is to the wealthy, 
<laughs> right. So I have to have wealth so then I can minister to those who are wealthy, right? So if they're going to have all the cars and the houses and all that stuff, I have to have the cars and the houses or else they're not going to listen to a word I say. If they're dressed in, I don't know, Armani or I don't know, whatever the, what's the cool clothing line now? I don't know. Huh? Kmart, right. <laughs> right. Hey. Kmart, why not, right? But, I, but it's kind of like that, right? So the guy would say, oh, well, they're wearing Armani and, and, and all this other stuff. And I come wearing Kmart clothes. They're not going to listen to me. But I, would, I never thought of it back then. But as I was writing this, I, may, I remembered that. And I thought of St. Paul. St. Paul won the wealthy of his city. Not by displaying the trappings of wealth, but by preaching Christ. So the outward appearance, the outward form isn't what matters. It's not the people who look like true apostles, who sound like them, but those who are truly apostles because of the inside. 1 Samuel 16, 7 reminds us, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? On the heart. And if you remember that story, Samuel is going to anoint, he doesn't know, David. And, and, and David's father has all of his sons except David come before Samuel. And Samuel looks at the first one and is like, wow, he's really big and tall and strong. This has to be the one. And God says, No. And then he looks at the next one. He's like, he's also really tall, big, and strong. And God said, no. And he kind of goes down the line. And he's like, you got any more sons? <laughs> and David's dad's like, yeah, I got one more. But he's kind of like out watching the sheep. And Samuel's like, okay, I'll wait. And they go and they send. And we know the story. He anoints David as the next king of Israel. But we learn from that story that God looks on the heart. That has not changed from David's time to St. Paul's time to our time. The Lord looks on the heart. And he says here in 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the love of Christ here, he says, it controls us. You could also say that impels or constrains. Probably maybe a best word way to say it is, the love of Christ drives him. Right? The, Christ's love drives St. Paul. Love is the force that moves him. Love for God and love for the Corinthians. Why does love drive him? Because he understands that Christ died for everyone. Well, there's a theology in a particular tradition regarding predestination that God chose before all time those whom he would save and those he would damn. So they would say, people who believe this would look at texts like this and say, well, when all appears in texts like this, it's not interpreted as all people, but all kinds of people. They'll say that Jesus' death is effective. It, 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 Jesus does die for all, right? He dies on the behalf of everyone, on behalf of all. But it's only effective for those whom God chose beforehand to be saved. But I don't think that this is true, brothers and sisters. It has a certain logic to it, and it even makes sense, and it can have what looks like support in Scripture. But I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that he's talking about all kinds of people. It's pretty plain in the languages. Christ died for all. 
so that all who live will not live for themselves, but live for Christ. Why? Because Christ died and was raised for them. So he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. So is what he's saying here, in light of Christ giving himself for all, right? The response from them that is to live for him, then part of living for him means that the Corinthians can no longer treat one another according to the flesh. So that is to say they cannot treat their brothers and sisters in Christ as they were unconverted or worldly. They're not to import their pre-Christian ways of judging people into the faith. And this is important because a lot of times what we do is we treat ourselves sometimes. We treat our brothers, our sisters, our husbands, our wives, our grandparents, strangers, people we run into on the street. We treat them according to our pre-Christian way of being. We treat them according to the flesh. We don't treat them as if we're the person whom Christ has loved, whom Christ has forgiven. We treat them as if they are somebody who Christ has not died for, whom Christ has not forgiven. Brothers and sisters, that should not be so. That should not be so. We should treat each other and others the way that Christ died for us. We're not to import our pre-Christian ways of judging people into our faith. And then he says this here, verse 17. One of the most well-known verses in the New Testament, right? On coffee cups and t-shirts. I think I even saw it at Hobby Lobby on a wooden board. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is transformative in its power. And this is why, continuing his thought from the previous verse, they cannot treat anyone according to the flesh. So there's some disagreement here about new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So people who study the languages and commentators and stuff, they look at this and they say, is new creation, this language applied to them as an individual, you and you and you and you, or is it applied to... um, or is it a general reference to the life of the new creation of God already present and at work in the here and now? Some people say this is individual. Some people say, well, this is more kind of a generalized thing. Well, I think it can be both. I can be both. It has an individual context that if we are in Christ, we have been renewed. Scripture says, I think in Titus 3, 3 through 7, um, it says that, that God, that we have been regenerated, Right? We have been regenerated. We have been made new. We have been brought from death to life. But it's also descriptive of the life of the new creation already present through Jesus' ministry and then through the ministry of the church. It's already present here and now, and it's working its way out now. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Everything that marked them as not gods has been erased, and now they have been marked as gods. They belonged to God. So their past way of living, their past way of thinking, their past ways of being, they are dead because they, ha- they are new and they have been raised with Christ. So brothers and sisters, for us, we are new people. And everything that identified with our old person, our pre-Christian state of fallenness, that has all been done away with. That has all been washed away. 
But this is the tension of the Christian life, brothers and sisters, because it's not like once we're new, everything becomes automatically great. When I became a Christian, and when many of you became a Christian, you, you, may, have, you, you may have seen that you still struggle with some of the same struggles you have had in the past. Now, there are people with, with amazing testimonies who... Uh, um, I know somebody who... who who before they were a Christian, who, who smoked packs of cigarettes a day, a day. And then when they became a Christian, that desire was gone, and they never struggled with that again. And God is gracious to us sometimes, brothers and sisters, but the tension I think we feel is between the old creation and the new creation, because even though we have been made new, we're still in this weird struggle point, right, between the old part of us that still wants to dominate and the new part of us that wants to live according to the Spirit, and so, brothers and sisters, that's what the Christian life is, is learning how to live in that tension between the lure of what is old and what God has done in us that is new. So like St. Paul says, let us then still, in the fear of the Lord, make our aim to please God in everything we say, everything we do, and through everyone that we can come in contact with. And this isn't easy. This is hard, brothers and sisters, right? Like, like we can be honest here, right? It's not, this can be difficult, but it's not impossible because God lives in us now, right? He, he, we have become temples of the Holy Spirit. And so the Christian life is in learning then, sometimes it's just a little decision every day where we turn our hearts away from the world and towards God. And it can be difficult, and it can take a long time. It could even take a lifetime, brothers and sisters. But we can walk by faith, like St. Paul says, not by sight. Knowing, 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 like St. Paul did, that we will one day be at home with the Lord. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father, who is from everlasting, and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. Amen. And I ask everybody to stand. Let us affirm our faith together. With all Christians everywhere, we confess we believe in one God, the Father who made everything. The Father sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. Jesus rose again as Lord of all, that we might live forever with Him. The Father sent His Holy Spirit to live in us, that we may grow more like Jesus. Amen. Before we sing the hymn, Think about that, right? The Father sent His Holy Spirit in us. He has given Him to us so that we can become more like Him. God doesn't just say, I want you guys to change. I want you to live according to the Spirit. He actually gives us the ability to do so by giving us the Holy Spirit. So take heart today, brothers and sisters, in that. That what God asks us to do, He gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us, to strengthen us to do that. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. You know, our church has deep roots here in the community, and we predate the founding of the United States itself. If you're looking for a church that is biblically faithful and traditionally grounded, come visit us. We may just be the church for you. You can find us online, zionsstoneucc.com. You can find us on Facebook as well, Zion Stone UCC.
WCC. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman. If you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at malandsman at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. May God bless you, and we hope to have you visit us. Next